Our reading from God's Holy Word this morning comes from Mark chapter 5, verses 21 to 43. Please give attention to the reading of God's Holy Word. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her, so that she may be made well and live. And he went with them. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him, and there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for twelve years, and who had suffered much under many physicians, and had spent all that she had, and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus, and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, If I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd, pressing around you and saying, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, as we have just heard your word read in the presence of your people, we now submit ourselves to the instruction of this your word, knowing that we are in need of the same hope that you offered to these your people. 
Father, be mindful of us and our frame. Know our histories and our burdens. And today, by your grace, preach to us through the Spirit the good news. And use your servant as your instrument to that end. Blessings we pray now upon your people. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, good morning. Thank you for inviting me to open God's Word with you this morning. Uh, My name is Russ Ramsey, and I am an author, and I'm also one of the pastors here in the Nashville Presbytery. I've been a pastor here in Nashville for about the last five years, and before that I was in Kansas City for about eight. Um, But way back before that, about 20 years ago, my wife and I, when we were first married, we used to meet for worship often in this very room, uh, back when Christ Community was here. And so it's fun, uh, it's fun to be back. <clears throat> this morning, with Easter drawing near and with this From Death to Life conference happening this weekend, I want to talk about the subject of hope, and specifically the hope that we have in Christ in the face of suffering and even death. And since we don't really know each other, I want to tell you exactly where I'm going this morning here at the very beginning. Uh, What I'm going to do in this sermon, it basically has two parts. So part one, I'm going to tell the story in the text that Pastor Nate just read. And then second, we're going to apply that story to our lives. And so to prime our application, I want to start by asking you, if you'll indulge me, a personal question. And the personal question is this, has some kind of heartache, pain, sorrow made you reluctant or unwilling to hope again? Hope hasn't, hope's not safe anymore. You don't get your hopes up. You don't want to have the kind of pain that you've experienced before come again. I think that we all in some degree or another, do this. It's just, it's part of our nature to not want to get burned twice. And so if you're somebody who struggles to believe that it is safe to hope, which I think we all do, God's word here fights for our hearts today. When I was growing up, I had a cat named Saki, S-A-K-I, like the Japanese drink. And uh, Saki was a phenomenon in the sense that she lived to be 18 years old. Saki was born a year before I was. So my whole life growing up, we had this, this cat. And when I was 16 years old, Saki got sick. And it was the kind of sickness that my parents sat my brother and I down and they said, listen, she's suffering. Uh, she's had a good run. Um, and uh, we, we, we think we need to go and, and uh, mercifully put her down. And I remember watching my mom carry this cat down the sidewalk to the car. We lived on a gravel road. I remember seeing the plume of dust that her car left as she drove away with this cat that I'd known my whole life, and I just stood and watched out the window and wept. I just I wept over, over this, this cat. This was one of my earliest experiences with mortality, at least that was close to me. And after a little while, she she came home, and I saw her walking up the sidewalk, and she was carrying this cat. And the cat was alive, 
because as it turned out, there was some new miracle drug that the vet had that fixed what ailed her. And I remember just being so elated to see this cat again. Just, my, she's been saved. It was, it was an experience kind of, of resurrection for me, you know? Then about nine months later, Saki got sick again, and this time my parents said, you know, she's kind of used her nine lives. It's, we had a good little extra bit of time with her, but we, we really, this time we really need to put her down. And again, my mom walks down the sidewalk with the cat, and I watch her drive away, and I cry as I watch out the window. And again, she comes back a little bit later carrying Saki, who is again very much alive. Because again, there was some kind of medicine or treatment that would fix this cat. Only this time, when I saw my relieved mother carrying Saki up the sidewalk, I was mad. I was mad because I had grieved this cat twice, and that was enough. I wasn't going to do this again. I wasn't going to hurt over her. That cat was dead to me. And as I stand before you, I never really interacted with that cat much after that during the remaining months of her crazy long life. And so I ask you, what was going on inside of me that made me draw a line with that cat? What was happening inside my heart? Because you, you do this, right? We, we do this. We manage grief. We manage pain. We manage sorrow. Where are you trying to do that right now? Where are you trying to manage hope so that it won't disappoint you, so that it won't let you down? Why do we try to avoid getting our hopes up? Well, the answer is, of course, because this is a hard world, and we know it. The longer we live here, the more we know it. This is a hard world. And yet, the gospel calls believers in Jesus Christ to live lives that are marked with hope. The greatest things in our lives are faith, hope, and love. We're called to be people who lives li live lives that are marked with the profound hope that every sad thing will one day come untrue. But for many of, this, many of us, what this means is hoping as we walk through some sort of deep, deep sorrow. And that's hard to deal with. And it raises our question this morning, who is Jesus to awaken hope in us, to insist that we hope in such a hard world? When we look at Jesus, we see a man who doesn't just awaken hope, but he fights to awaken hope, doesn't he? To not let it sleep. And the battlefield for that fight, for our hearts, is often our sorrow. That's often where that fight happens. But in the fight for hope, sometimes what Christ does is before he leads us out of our sorrow, he leads us deeper into it. That's where a lot of us stop. We say, I don't want to go any further into this. I know you may want to deal with my pain and my sorrow, but if it means leading me deeper into it, I, I, I just don't know that I can do that. But often that's what, it, what he does isn't it? I wish I, I didn't have to say that that was the case, but 
we know that's true too, don't we? We have to go through it. Today's text gives us a picture of this. And so I want to venture in, I want to unpack this story, and I want to ask you, invite you, bring your sorrow, your pain, your fear, your skepticism. When I said you're carrying a sorrow or a pain, whatever the specific example was that came to your mind, and that bring that with you into this passage. The text opens, Mark 5, and Jesus is in a crowd. And this is an era during his earthly ministry when he is popular. He's famous. There's crowds that press in all around him because he's performed lots of miracles, a lot of powerful teaching, and what he's done is he's awakened hope in the masses of people. People wanted to be near him. They wanted to get a piece of him. And there's this ruler from the synagogue named Jairus, and he presses his way through the crowd to fall at Jesus' feet and to plead with him for the life of his dying daughter. My little girl is at the point of death. Come lay your hands on her so that she might be made well. Now, Jairus is a man of influence. He's a man of means. He's a respected leader in his community. But when he falls at Jesus' feet and he shows this humility and sincerity, we we realize he's not a public figure here. Right here what he is is he's a dad. He's a dad pleading for his little girl. Why? Because Jesus has awakened hope in him to a point. They make their way to Jairus' house through the crowd, and there's this woman who has this discharge of blood, and she's had it for 12 years, and she suffered much under many physicians. She spent everything that she had to try to be healed, but she's no better, and in fact, rather, grew worse. Now, what's going on with this woman? Leviticus chapter 15 tells us rather graphically, that her condition made her ceremonially unclean to the point that everything that she touched, clothing, furniture, other people, they also became unclean, that she would by contact defile. And what this meant is it meant that she was ceremonially, uh, she was effectively a ghost in her own community. She's a socially dead person. She's there in body, but not in identity. She is her affliction. To add to her pain, she spent everything that she had to be healed to no avail. Every attempt has failed. She's out of money. She's still sick. And so she sees Jesus in the crowd, and she presses through the crowd, touching people to get to him. Why? Because Jesus has awakened hope in her. She'd heard reports. And so she came up behind him in the crowd. She touches his garment because she thinks, if I just touch even his garments, I will be made well. And when she did, the bleeding stopped. After 12 years, it stopped. And she was healed. And Jesus perceived that power had gone out of him, so he turned around and he said, who touched my garments? And his disciples looked around kind of incredulously, and they they said, you you see this mass of people, and you're asking, who touched you? Anybody could have touched you. We all touched you. But the woman knew what was going on, and she she came, and she, she, she knew what happened to her. She came in fear and trembling, and she fell down before Jesus, and she told him the whole truth, her whole story. 
And Jesus said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. When Jesus calls this woman daughter, that makes this passage now the story of two daughters who both need something only Jesus can give. While all this was happening, somebody came from Jairus' house and said to him, she's gone. Don't, don't trouble the teacher any further. If you're Jairus at this point, how do you feel about Jesus having stopped to attend to this bleeding woman? How's that sit with you? Did she prevent Jesus from saving your child? Is this how God works? If you're somebody who struggles to accept Christ's ability to meet you in your sorrow, you just need to hear what happens next. Listen to this. Overhearing this, Jesus says to Jairus, do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one except Peter, James, and John to follow. And they came to Jairus' house, and they saw people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he entered, he said to them, why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but asleep. And they laughed at him. Not funny, ha-ha, but they scoffed. The laugh of disbelief. But he put them all outside and he took Jairus and his wife and Peter and James and John and they went into the room where the dead girl lay on her bed. Six people. Six people go into this room. Peter, James, John, mom, dad, and Jesus. They step into this room where the world has just burned to the ground. For Jairus and his wife, don't let this be lost on us. What Jesus is doing is he's taking them into the saddest place in the world. And he's saying, trust me. And then taking the little girl by the hand, he says to her, Talitha, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl who was 12 years old, she was born around the same time the bleeding woman's bleeding began. She gets up and she begins walking around and they're all overcome. And Jesus tells them, don't tell anyone about this. Give her something to eat. So with the simplicity and tenderness of two words, honey, Wake up. The dead girl lives. Such an intimate moment, isn't it? It's Jesus and a child who's getting out of bed. And he has awakened her. He's put his disciples in a place where they have now seen something like this, and he's awakened hope in them. He's restored hope in Jairus and his wife. 
It's amazing. That's the story. How do we apply it? Let's apply it. How do we enter into the hope that Jesus awakens? Let me ask you a question as we get into this. And this is an important question. Is Jesus' love for Jairus and his little girl any greater than his love for you or me? Does God love by degree? What do we do with a story like this? We whose lives are filled with pain and confusion and grief and loss and a desire to self-protect. What I want to do is I want to name two truths from this passage and then two applications. And these are going to go quickly. We're not going to be here all morning. But two truths. If you're someone who guards your heart from hope, for fear that God will let you down, for fear that anyone other than you will let you down, consider these two truths first. Truth number one. What God does for someone else has no bearing on his ability to do something for you. What God does for someone else has no bearing on his ability to do something for you. When God blesses someone else, do you ever feel that because he did that for this person, you're just not, he's not going to do that for you, he's not going to give you what he gave that other person, or he's kind of out of, uh, he's sort of run out of, of good things that he's going to do for the day. What God does for this bleeding woman has no bearing on his ability to attend to Jairus' need. And so it's, it's an important thing for us to not compare our situation to somebody else's as if what God has done for them has anything to do with what he means to do for us. Your Father in heaven, Jesus tells us, knows what you need. When his son asks for a stone, or asks for bread, will he give you a stone because he already gave bread to another one of his children? What God does for someone else has no bearing on his ability to do something for you. That's truth number one. Truth number two, we know this one. God is not constrained by time. It's hard for us to understand because we are constrained by time. But in his word, he gives us Lots of places where he tells us that his timing is not our timing. My ways are not your ways. My thoughts are higher than your thoughts. For God, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. It's impossible math that's meant to encourage us. It's meant to set us at ease, to say, okay, I'm thinking about it from my earthbound perspective. But God is free of that. It means that perceived deadlines can pass. From our perspective, don't, don't bother Jesus anymore. The girl is already dead. But that's no constraint for God to do exactly what he intends to do. With God, it's never too late. God is not constrained by time. And what God has done for someone else has no bearing on his ability to do something for you or me. So how do we move toward hope practically then? Let me offer these last two concluding applications. The first is... <clears throat> We move toward Jesus in whatever condition we're in. 
Don't withdraw into yourself because you feel disqualified. It's easy for us to think Jesus doesn't want to deal with us until we've already cleaned ourselves up. But sometimes our affliction, our addiction, our sorrow, our past, that voice that says, you don't know what I've done, and what I've done is who I am. Sometimes that's so big that we can't imagine how we could ever make ourselves whole again. What an incredible burden to carry. And so it's a mercy when Jesus moves us to a place where the only card we have left to play is to turn to him in desperation and say, I have nothing. I need you to have everything. Because the truth is we're never not in that position. But we can easily forget it. We may feel like our situation in life precludes us from knowing Jesus well. But Jesus' response to this bleeding woman assures us that in our desperation, the best thing that we can do is seek Jesus in the condition we're in, even in our most undesirable condition. I mean, look at this bleeding woman. She touches Jesus, and what happens? She didn't make him unclean. He made her clean. His strength was made perfect in her weakness. And then he goes public with it. He calls her out. Who touched me? He has this conversation in the crowd with this woman. Why did he do that? Why did he call her out? I think there's a lot of reasons, but there's at least two that I want to point out. First, to make sure that she knew that her faith didn't just make her clean, but it made her a daughter. She was beloved. She was known. And the second reason he calls her out, I think, is is to make sure that everybody else also knew that she was no longer who they thought she was. She was clean now. What Jesus does with this woman when he calls her out is he gives her back to her community. This is what Jesus does when he heals us. When he heals us, he always does it in the context of calling us to live in our community, in the fellowship of other believers. And so we come to Jesus desperate, if we ever come to him at all. But we can move toward him in whatever condition we're in. He will not turn you away because a bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. So move toward Jesus in whatever condition you're in. And then lastly, and this one's perhaps hard for some of us, for many of us, in prayer, in relationships with other believers, in your time with the Word of God, enter with Jesus into your rooms of sorrow and pain. Jairus' friends tell him, don't bother Jesus anymore. Let her go. She's gone. But when Jesus says to him, no, she's not gone, I can wake her, Jairus has a decision to make, doesn't he? Dare I continue to hope? Jairus had come to Jesus with a portion of faith. But at this point, his willingness to really hope gets tested. 
tested in ways that he didn't anticipate. Because see, what Jesus asks Jerry and his wife to do is to step into a room with him that holds their deepest sorrow with the promise that he will turn their mourning into joy. Which is the promise of the gospel. It is the hope we have in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is the guaranteed eternal destiny of anyone whose faith is in Jesus Christ that all of our sorrow will be turned into joy forever. But think about the scene. Let your mind go there. When Jesus asks Jairus and his wife to go with him to the girl's bedside, he's asking them to trust him with their greatest hurt. We have rooms like these in our lives and in our hearts, don't we? Places that we hold it sacred because they house our deepest pain. When we're afraid to hope for them to be healed, we do what we can to keep our distance. And that's no way to live. What are your rooms of death and sorrow and pain? What are they? To enter into the hope Christ offers us is to follow him into the places of our deepest pain, acknowledging through even our tears that Jesus himself is no stranger to places like these, our man of sorrows. No season puts this on display more than Easter. We see our unwavering man of sorrows take upon himself the sins of the world to ultimately defeat the power of death. And so I ask the question again, is Jesus' love for Jairus' little girl any greater than his love for you or me? The bleeding woman and Jairus both come to Jesus and they have immediate problems. But those problems speak to a deeper level of brokenness. Because this side of glory, there is no shortage of sad things. As Jesus said in this world, you will have trouble. But the immediate healing Jesus gives them is only a foretaste of a greater healing. The perfect, ultimate healing that is the eternal destiny of the people of God. Every affliction that we have right now, every sorrow that we have right now, is a momentary affliction. Everyone, it will pass. It will be healed. Because this is so, do not numb yourselves and pray that I wouldn't either. But through prayer, scripture, and community, draw near to Jesus in your sorrow now. Use what he has given, his word, prayer, the community of faith. It's not too late. He's got you. He's not constrained by time. What he's done for somebody else has no bearing on what he's going to do for you. And he loves you. He does. Pray with me. Father, I thank you for this story. Um, it is a picture of your compassion for your people. We know that you healed this little girl and she has since gone on to die again in the flesh. That that's what happens to us. 
until you return. And yet, Lord, you promise us that even that, that death, this physical death, is not the end of the story by any stretch of the imagination. That death itself is defeated by the power of your resurrection. And so, Lord, make us people who dare to hope in that. That we would have a big vision, a big view of you in the midst of our sorrow and pain. And Lord, for those places and those times when our vision for you is small and is narrow and is protected by our fear and our pain, deal mercifully with us. Like the woman with the bleeding, call us out and make us public about our sorrow so that we will have a community around us. Thank you for your compassion. Thank you for your mercy and your grace. Thank you for the resurrection of your son, Jesus. It is in his name that we pray. Amen.